welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today marks the centenary of the outbreak of World War I and we wanted to share the stories we've come to know and love by our authors about this momentous occasion in history. From accounts by soldiers who lived in the trenches to fictional novels recreating the lives of people during that time, we'll take you back a hundred years to give you a snapshot of those four, even five, long years at war. And who better to introduce us to the First World War than Jeremy Paxman, who has brought to light the day-to-day experience of the British over the entire course of the war in his book Great Britain's Great War. Here he is talking to his editor about why he wanted to write a book on the First World War. Yes, I wanted to write the book because I thought that I knew about the First World War and I realised that what really I knew was the 1960s caricature of the First World War. And it struck me that you know, as we approached the 100th anniversary that it was probably time that we try to go back to first principles, try to find out what the war was like to those who lived through it, who fought in it, some of them were wounded in it, some of them were died. A multiplicity of witnesses who left masses and masses of first-hand evidence, but to try to understand it through their experience, to see the war as they saw it, rather than the way that 1960s polemicists, theatre producers and the rest of it saw them. You mentioned in the introduction um, if a Victorian time traveller came from the 1880s to 1914, they'd, they'd recognise the world around them, but but that that wasn't the case by the end of the war. So so what? How would you describe that world of 1914 in terms of its differences? I think the world of 1914, which would have been instantly recognisable to a Victorian time traveller, was a world in which everyone knew their place, where the class structure was very very fixed, where women knew their place, where the vast majority of the population didn't have the vote. Uh, the world which followed the First World War was entirely different. Everything had been challenged. Soon after the end of the war, we had the first Labour government. Most people uh, had the vote. There was still a way to go on votes for women, but women, a a substantial number of women, were able to vote after the First World War. None of them had been able to vote beforehand. The whole relationship between the citizen and the government had changed. Uh, the government had got involved in almost every aspect of people's lives. It even, I mean, it even de- de- decreed whether you could buy someone a drink or not. Basically, you couldn't. Uh, you were, um, there were cases of people who were fined for buying their wife a drink, for example, in a pub. It determined what people were paid. It determined what rents they paid. It determined what they ate through the introduction of rationing. It was, it was a wholesale intervention in the lives of the citizen which had become necessary because of what had happened during the war. And famously, of course, it decreed whether you wore a uniform or could get away with not wearing a uniform. So there had been this huge intervention of the government in people's lives, and it was understandably felt that in return for this, by the time the war was over, the people should have a much more clear and honest say in the choosing of the government which was later to interfere in their lives so it was a huge huge change uh, one of the things that um sort of is perhaps related to that is uh, a kind of suspicion perhaps a, a growing suspicion of the uh, absolute authority of of elites and and hierarchies as they've been known the t- kind of traditional structures 
Um, and that that manifested itself at the level of government, is that right? But also at the level of, of daily life. Perhaps you could talk a bit about those I two think things. that's right. I mean, people, no one went through the First World War wearing a uniform without emerging with a healthy degree of scepticism for the way that the the generals and the commanders had behaved and whether they could really treat their instructions with at face value. Um, there's a little Siegfried Sassoon poem which goes, you know, good morning, good morning, the general said when we met him last week on our way to the line. He's a cheery old card, said Harry to Jack, but he did for them both with his plan of attack. And there's something that emerged from the First World War about about the way that people regarded authority that had changed, I think, forever. And I don't, I don't think much of the criticism of the generals is actually justified. I think that they, no general sets out to lose vast numbers of men and, and make a defeat more likely. I mean, that's just stupid. So I don't think a lot of the criticism of the generals is fair. Nonetheless, it is true because nobody knew until the very late stages of the war how to make a breakthrough. That's why they tried all these horrible weapons like gas or tanks or flamethrowers. Everyone was looking for a way of making a breakthrough. Everyone on both sides was looking for a way of a breakthrough. Uh, it, it remained elusive for a very long time. And in that time, there was assault after assault in which very large numbers of people died. And therefore, understandably, people became suspicious of authority. But I don't think that the criticism that this was done intentionally is fair, although I do think it's true, as you say, that people emerged with a, with a much higher degree of skepticism about authority than they had had before. Interestingly, at the same time, you also describe a sort of um, coming together of the classes um, on the front line itself and the relationship between the men and their officers. And um, it, that, again, seems to overturn our uh, stereotypical view of, of the upper classes being separate from the lower classes. Sure. There was, there was of course, a distinction between officers and men and there is even now in the army, although it's a much more classless thing, and many more officers come from the, the ranks. Incidentally, I mean, such was the the most dangerous job in the army was to be a, a the most junior officer, a subaltern, a second lieutenant, uh, who in an attack had to take lead his men from the front, take them over the top. He was expected to say, "Come on, not go on," and. So vast numbers of them were killed, and the traditional reservoir of young army officers, which was the, you know, the public schools, that was soon exhausted. And so officers were coming from all sorts of backgrounds, and by the end of the war, about 40% of the officers had not come from the background you might have expected at the start of the war, and there were men who were commanding battalions who'd been taxi drivers. There were men who'd been blacksmiths. There were all manner of occupations that these guys had had in peacetime. So the, the, the composition of the officer class changed. As to your point about living in the trenches, changing the relationship, well, perhaps it did. Ge generally speaking, the officers messed together. In other words, lived in their own hole in the ground, and the men lived in a different hole in the ground. But... I don't think you can go through that experience 
where you do everything together, where you you fight together, you fear together, you eat together, you shit together. You know, the whole the whole experience was so intimate that I think it did it did blur. It blurred boundaries and it gave an understanding across what had been a previously enormous chasm of those who had and those who had not. So I think it you know, it did it did change relations between the classes, no question. That was Jeremy Paxman talking about the British during World War One. His book, Great Britain's Great War, is out now in a format that suits you. From a 21st century view to a contemporary view of the time, the First World War gave birth to some of the most poignant and moving poetry by the soldiers who saw firsthand the carnage and atrocities of warfare. Robert Graves is one such author who wrote realistic poems about his experience of frontline conflict. Thanks to the poetry collection of the University Libraries at the University of Buffalo, we have a live recording of Robert Graves at a poetry reading he gave at the University on May the 16th, 1960. Here he is, introducing his poem, The Second Fated. Well, the next two poems are what might be called characteristically Robert Graves, if that's, if that's any recommendation. The first refers to my peculiar fate as what the Athenians called a deuteropotmos, meaning one who has been officially listed as dead <coughs> and struck off the role of citizens. Well, that happened uh, on my 21st birthday in the First World War, a long time ago. At Athens, uh, a deuteropotmos was f forbidden to enter the temple of the infernal gods, uh, presumably to avoid reminding these infernal gods of his previous uh, appearance there. This poem is called uh, The Second Fated. My stutter, my cough, my unfinished sentences denote an inveterate physical reluctance to use the metaphysical idiom. Forgive me. What I am saying is perhaps this. Your accepted universe, by Jove's naked hand, or Esmond's, or Ottomancomas or Marduks, choose which name jibes, formed scientifically from whatever there was before time was, and begging the question of perfect consequence, may satisfy the general run of men, if run be an apt term for patent paralytics. The blueprints destine all they suffer here, but does not satisfy certain few else. Fortune enrolled me among the second fated, who have read their own obituaries in the times, have heard, where death thy sting, where grave thy victory, intoned with unction over their still clay, have seen two parallel red inclines drawn under their manic depressive bank accounts, and are therefore strictly forbidden to walk in graveyards, lest they scandalize the Saxon and his bride. We, to be plain with you, taking advantage of a brief demise, visited first the pit, that library of shades, completed characters, and next the silver-bright Hyperborean queendom basking under the scepter of guess whom, where pure souls matrilineally foregather 
uh, we were then, then shot through by merciful lunar shafts until hearts tingled, heads sang, and praises flowed, and learnt to scorn your factitious universe, ruled by the death which we had flouted, acknowledging only that from the dove's egg hatched before aught was but wind, unpredictable as our second birth would be, or our second love, a moon-warmed world of discontinuance. Robert Graves, reading some of his poems at the University of Buffalo in 1960. His books, including his autobiography, Goodbye to All That, about his experiences before and during the First World War, are available from Penguin Classics. A fellow officer in Graves's regiment was another great poet of the time, Siegfried Sassoon, who was repulsed by the conduct of the war and made very strong anti-war statements in public. As his friend, Graves worried this behaviour would lead to a court-martial, so he took it upon himself to convince the military authorities that Sassoon was suffering from shell shock and should be treated in a military hospital. Sassoon was consequently sent to Craig Lockhart for treatment, which serves as the backdrop in Pat Barker's novel Regeneration, the first book in the Regeneration trilogy. We'll shortly hear Pat Barker talking about why she chose to write about the First World War poets, but first, here's the opening of Regeneration, where army psychiatrist William Rivers finds a letter written by Sassoon entitled Finished with the War, a Soldier's Declaration. He reads it to Major Bryce. I'm making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority because I believe the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I'm a soldier, convinced that I am acting on behalf of soldiers. I believe that this war, upon which I entered as a war of defence and liberation, has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I believe that the purposes for which I and my fellow soldiers entered upon this war should have been so clearly stated as to have made it impossible to change them, and that, had this been done, the objects which actuated us would now be attainable by negotiation. I have seen and endured the suffering of the troops, and I can no longer be a party to prolong these sufferings for ends which I believe to be evil and unjust. I'm not protesting against the conduct of the war, but against the political errors and insincerities for which the fighting men are being sacrificed. On behalf of those who are suffering now, I make this protest against the deception which is being practised on them. Also, I believe that I may help to destroy the callous complacence with which the majority of those at home regard the continuance of agonies which they do not share and which they have not sufficient imagination to realise. S. Sassoon, July 1917 Bryce waited for Rivers to finish reading before he spoke again. The S stands for Siegfried. Apparently he thought that was better left out. And I'm sure he was right. Rivers folded the paper and ran his fingertips along the edge. So they're sending him here? Bryce smiled. Oh, I think it's rather more specific than that. They're sending him to you. Rivers got up and walked across to the window. It was a fine day, and many of the patients were in the hospital grounds, watching a game of tennis. He heard the pock-pock of rackets and a cry of frustration as a ball smashed into the net. I suppose he is shell-shocked. According to the board, yes. 
It just occurs to me that a diagnosis of neurasthenia might not be inconvenient confronted with this. He held up the declaration. Colonel Langdon chaired the board. He certainly seems to think he is. Langdon doesn't believe in shell-shock. Bryce shrugged. Perhaps Sassoon was gibbering all over the floor. Funk, old boy. I know Langdon. Rivers came back to his chair and sat down. He doesn't sound as if he's gibbering, does he? Bryce said carefully, Does it matter what his mental state is? Surely it's better for him to be here than in prison. Better for him, perhaps. What about the hospital? Can you imagine what our dear Director of Medical Services is going to say when he finds out we're sheltering conchies as well as cowards, shirkers, scrimshankers and degenerates? We'll just have to hope there's no publicity. There's going to be, I'm afraid. The declaration's going to be read out in the House of Commons next week. By Lee Smith. Rivers made a dismissive gesture. Yes, well, I know, but it still means the press. And the minister will say that no disciplinary action has been taken because Mr Sassoon is suffering from a severe mental breakdown and therefore not responsible for his actions. I'm not sure I'd prefer that to prison. I don't suppose he was offered the choice. Will you take him? You mean I am being offered a choice? In view of your case, Lord, yes. Rivers took off his glasses and swept his hand down across his eyes. I suppose they have remembered to send the file. I suppose I came across the First World War poets in uh, uh, later years at school, and then I came across Wilfred Owen specifically uh, when I listened to uh, an early recording of the Benjamin Britten War Requiem. And what struck you... Um when, when listening to Owen? Ah, uh, the poetry and the pity, exactly what he intended you to be struck by. Uh, later, when I, I read more of the poetry and, you know, thought about it a little bit, of course, his attitudes to the war are much more complex uh, than the attitudes which, you know, Saint Wilfred is supposed to have had. Uh, I mean, the, the poem Apologia uh, Pro Poemato Meo, um, has uh, a reverence for the fighting man and a contempt for civilians, which I think not a lot of people associate with Wilfred Owen, but was very much part of his artistic personality. And did Owen lead you to to the other poets? Was that uh, was there a direct line from him to some of the others? I think I smoked them first, probably in intho- anthologies, and, and read them all together. And who was the who was the next important one for you? Would that have been Sassoon? Uh, yes, uh, you know, Sassoon doesn't have the depth of Owen, but I mean, it's uh, it's very difficult for us to recapture that sort of angry, satirical voice and how much impact it made at the time. And he is um, extraordinarily visual. I mean, his poem Counterattack is amazing in the way it makes you actually see what was going on, see the dead, bloated bodies. And do you think that... that the visual nature of those poems helped you because a lot of a lot of your own writing on the on the first world war has been very much to do with the senses and um, to do with pe- what people could could see in front of them uh, i think so and i think the reason why they they worked very very hard at the uh, the visual impact of their poetry and their images was that um, of course you were not allowed to take photographs 
uh, in the trenches. Uh, it, it was censored as in a different way. Wars are also censored today. And um, Wilfred Owen is a, a said, it's a sort of legend, that he had uh, photographs of mutilated bodies in his pocket when he came home on leave and used to show them to people to try to shock them into some realisation of uh, what was going on out there. Uh, but I, I suspect later he would have thought his poems were doing what the f photographs didn't quite do. Right, and they could be even more successful in other ways, I guess, too, because they would have that kind of emotional through line. Um, I was wondering, too, if you could talk about W.H.R. Rivers a little bit, another, another figure who, who pops up. Uh, Rivers was the, uh, the, the, well, he wouldn't have called himself a psychiatrist. He would have called himself a psychologist. Uh, but he was the person who treated, uh, oh, treated in inverted commas, Siegfried Sassoon. Uh, Rivers was a remarkable man. He was an anthropologist. He was a neurologist. And when the war broke out, he offered his services as uh, a psychologist or psychiatrist. Uh, and treated shell-shocked soldiers. Uh, he was important to me because he's a person who wasn't ever in the trench himself, like I have never been in the trench and you have never been in the trench. So it gives you a perspective onto that war of somebody who is interested and sympathetic but has never actually been there. And that was very important to me. I didn't want to write a book which pretended to be a book by a combatant. Maybe you could talk a bit about... Craig Lockhart as well. Um, it seems that we know about the, the front, the famous names, the Somme, but names like that are, are less known, and it seems that they, in a way, were, were battlegrounds too, in, in, a, in perhaps a different way. I, th I think there was a feeling, a sense in which Craig Lockhart, which is, uh, it, it had been a sort of uh, home for people with, uh, you know, various uh, mental illnesses, neurasthenia, as they then called it, but also alcoholism. Uh, before the war, it had uh, fallen on evil days. It was a very decayed, very dark building. And uh, the, the officers, uh, the, the uh, psychiatrists, who were for the most part in the army and also officers, had to work very hard to create a cheerful atmosphere in this building. Uh, and the whole environment really was against them. And uh, Sassoon says that it worked very well by day. Uh, everybody was getting on. There was a variety of activities. It was all very upbeat. But at night, uh, the, the psychiatrists lost control of the hospital because the distinguishing feature of shell shock is the battle nightmare. And, you know, uh, at night in these dark corridors and these little rooms with two or three men in them, usually. It was very overcrowded. You would have people screaming and crying out or other people pacing up and down because they were afraid to go to sleep. And in, in, in a sense, every night, the front came to Craig Lockhart and took over. So, it, yeah, it, it seems like um, you can... Be taken away from battle, but of course, the battle, battle comes with you. It's going to come with you. Yeah. It comes with you. Um, why why base characters on on historical figures? I know you've you've mixed in your books uh, purely fictional characters and historical figures. I, I got fascinated by the relationship between Rivers and Sassoon and the way in which they almost changed places in the course of the therapy, uh, because Sassoon was 
actually persuaded by Rivers, uh, who was all the time undermining the protest to go back to the war. But at the same time, Sassoon was uh, underlining all Rivers's doubts about what was going on and reinforcing them. So at the end of the day, they'd each convince the other, but not to the point where either of them changed um, their basic stance, because actually it couldn't be changed. And you know, you could have a, you could have you know, call Sassoon Simpson, and you could call Rivers Pool, but what would be gained by that? To me, that that is a pointless exercise. Can we talk a little bit about Billy Pryor too? About yes, of course. Maybe yes. we can talk about some of the characters. Um, why was it important for you as a novelist to have a, a character like Billy to to lead us readers through? Um, someone who is, you know, very sexual, who has this uh, true lust for life. Why was it important to have uh, a character like that to well, focus on? Initially, the... he was designed to bring things out from uh, in Rivers and to create a dramatic pressure on Rivers so that Rivers could reveal parts of himself that he wasn't revealing because he was revered as, as a doctor and as fa a father figure. He was revered by his patients and... Also, of course, the patients, being very ill mentally, were also very self-obsessed, so they were not observing him, whereas Billy Pryor does observe him. Uh, and uh, socially, Billy Pryor is the sort of person who would not normally have become an officer in the British Army. And he's also uh, sexually ambidextrous, very seductive, very manipulative. So he is actually designed to make Rivers' life hell. You, you, you look at your diary for Monday morning and you see Billy Pryor and the first day. It's not a good moment. <laughs> but that must be a gift for you uh, as a novelist, having a character that, that you know oh, yes. is never I going mean, to pass quietly through someone's day. No, no, he is uh, is a social chameleon and he's a sexual chameleon as well. And yeah, that that's great. It's great fun to write about. It's also quite a relief when you stop writing him and get back into somebody else. That was Pat Barker, talking about her books in the Regeneration Trilogy, set during the First World War. The entire trilogy is available as a single edition from all book retailers. War, in general, is a subject for many authors. Full of drama, the stories set during wartime cover a multitude of themes, from lost love to comradeship to poverty. Stuart Binns is an author who has gained popularity from writing about the Crusades in his Making of England series. He returns this October with a brand new series called The Great War, which follows the lives of people during World War I. Here's a reading from the first of four books in the series, titled The Shadow of War. Thursday, 6th August. After German troops marched into Belgium on Tuesday, 4th August, invading a country whose neutrality Britain had vowed to protect, King George V signed a momentous declaration of war. The Foreign Office issued the following statement. Owing to the summary rejection by the German government of the request made by His Majesty's government for assurances that the neutrality of Belgium will be respected, His Majesty's ambassador to Berlin has received his passports, and His Majesty's government declared to the German government that a state of war exists between Great Britain and Germany, as from 11pm on 4th August 1914. By midnight, Five empires were at war, Austria-Hungary, Germany, France, Russia and Great Britain. All thought victory would be swift and decisive. The Kaiser, 
shocked that his British cousins, allies since they had fought together against Napoleon at Waterloo, should take such a step, relinquished his honorary titles as Field Marshal of the British Army and Admiral of her fleet. The German servants at the British Embassy in Berlin removed their uniforms, spat and trampled on them, and refused to help the British diplomats pack up and leave. The dramatic news that Britain was at war reached every corner of the nation like a shockwave. A reading from The Shadow of War by Stuart Binns, publishing in October. A reading from The Shadow of War by Stuart Binns, publishing in October. Coming up, the lost, forgotten voices of World War I. But first, our sister company, Dawling Kindersley, recently released a podcast on how much do we really know about World War I. Here's a short clip. Well, I think the, the, the whole first half of the 20th century is a fascinating period. Um, you've got to imagine that here is Europe in the 19th century, early 20th century, confident about its civilization, saw itself as a source of progress, uh, believed that you know, they were the wave of the future. Uh, and then suddenly into this society comes the First World War, then its aftermath, then the Depression, then the Second World War and the Holocaust. Uh, this requires historians to ask, I think, some big questions about why it happens. Uh, these are moments of real drama in European history, uh, and nobody, I think, could fail to be fascinated by them. How important and essential is it to keep documenting and remembering World War I uh, for today and future generations? I think remembering World War I is still very important. I mean, it's important because it was an extraordinary uh, milestone in Europe's modern history, uh, suddenly plunging the whole of the continent into a, a savage war for four years, uh, which Europe had not experienced since Napoleon. Um, the human cost was enormous, um, and families still bear, of course, the consequences of that, that human cost. And even though the wartime generation uh, has died off, I think it is very important still that future generations um, are reminded all the time um, of the problems associated with uh, past wars. Uh, learn lessons from them. Um, look out for the signs today of crises which might escalate beyond the level they ought to. I mean, how much do you think the world has learned since World War One? Do you think there has been a general progress that, as you say, lessons have been learned, or do you still think we're prone to repeat? Well, I think that people really learned from World War II. I mean, that really was an end. 1945 was, uh, 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 as the Germans called it, year zero. Yeah. Um, so much had happened between 1914 and 1945. Uh, and I think that did teach Europe a very profound lesson. You know, for don't do it again. We've had 60 years of growing uh, European collaboration since. So the First World War, people didn't really learn lessons from it. Had they done so, they might have avoided a second. So going back to, so you need to mention a bit about, like, say, the 19th century and, and Europe. I mean, and you mentioned the Napoleonic Wars, um, because obviously that's still kind of remembered. It's not remembered as the same way as World War One or World War Two. yet that was pretty much about, you know, an emperor or a dictator, in, in some respects, almost trying to invade Europe and then obviously get into Russia and failing. When you, when you try to say, well, what started World War One, would you say you have to look that far back? Well, I don't think you need to look that far back, except for one thing, of course, is that the French Revolution and Napoleon uh, began the move towards modern mass politics. Um, but after 1815, when the Napoleonic Wars came to an end, Europe was determined that they would find a way of maintaining a greater degree of international stability. 
Uh, and despite a number of small wars, they do succeed in doing that for uh, a, a whole century. And the shadow of the Napoleon, Napoleonic War, I think, begins to move away. It strikes me that what's really important, if we're looking for some deeper roots, uh, what's really important is the development of modern mass politics and the development of modern nationalism. Uh, and both of those things occur really in the last third of the of the 19th century. People began to think of themselves in terms of national identity. They began to talk about national competition. Uh, and this, I think, framed what was eventually going to happen with the outbreak of the First World War. Yeah, especially interesting you say that, because um, especially what happened in Serbia, Bosnia, they did seem to be where a lot of, it seems to be like the Austria were playing on that national pride as, as a catalyst of trying to sort of suppress them possibly, would you say? Well, I think the problem for Austria, of course, is that uh, you know, Austria is trying to maintain an, an ancient empire, uh, one which is increasingly old-fashioned. Uh, and there is nationalism, of course, outside Austria, nationalism in Serbia and so on. But there's also a lot of nationalism inside Austria, uh, people who want to be uh, independent of this multinational empire. And I think Austria is a very good example of exactly where the rise of mass politics and nationalism really matters. Uh, because the Hungarians, the Czechs, um, Slavs living in the Habsburg Empire, even the Austrians themselves who had increasingly pan-German views wanted to join with Germany, all of this posed a real threat to the survival of the Habsburg Empire. So nationalism uh, is, is really, in, in a fundamental way, uh, the cause of the collapse of the Austrian Empire uh, and the First World War. That was Richard Overy, editorial consultant of World War I, the definitive visual guide, talking about the history of the First World War. And you can hear the full How Much Do We Really Know About World War I podcast, as well as other informative podcasts on a huge range of subjects, by visiting the DK podcast on SoundCloud, www.soundcloud.com forward slash DK hyphen podcast. This is the Penguin podcast. The losses in the First World War were immeasurable. On average, around 10,000 soldiers and civilians were killed a day. The numbers don't really do it all justice. War memorials up and down the country commemorate their lives. But who really were these people? Clive Aslett sought to find out the true stories of these people in his book War Memorial, as you can hear in this interview. There are war memorials all over Britain. There are 100,000 altogether. They're part of the background of our lives. But often we see them, we see the names, and we don't know who these people are. And I thought, well, I would take one war memorial standing for all of them and see who these otherwise forgotten people really were, what they did in their lives in the village and what they did when they went away under arms. It's wonderful, the idea, the concept. Now, how on earth did you find the representative war memorial um, looking through the whole of Britain, I imagine? Well, it was important to me that I chose one really at random so that it would have this representative quality and would be, as it were, an example which stood for all the war memorials that there are. And I wanted one which came from a quiet place, a country place, because to me it's very moving when you see a village war memorial, a quiet place with so many names on it. This war memorial was unusual in two respects, really. One, it's a, I knew it was a very interesting village because it's a Saxon village. 
built by Alfred the Great originally, uh, but also the War Memorial is unusual because it has names from the Falklands War and Iraq, so it came right into the 21st century. So these Devon villagers, they were working on the land, on the moorland, in building, um, in all forms of jobs, weren't they? Yes, Some they were, were regular soldiers, I imagine, but others just dropped their arm, took to arms. Yes, they were country tradesmen, um, mostly builders and stonemasons, thatchers, that kind of thing. Um, one was a regular soldier who'd been in the army since 1907. Can you tell us a couple of stories about, let's say, two or three of those people to give us a sort of range of lifestyle and also the battles in which they fought and died? Yes, in the First World War, mostly they came from quite humble backgrounds. It, this, was, this reflected the vast number of people who took place in the class structure at the time. Charlie Berry, for example, he was the son... He didn't grow up in Lidford. He came from Chatham. He was the son of a boilermaker. He was the one who went off to uh, join the army in 1907, and he came back in 1914. He'd served his seven years, and he had to sign up right away and go off again. He fought at um, a battle at the end of 1914 called Gellevelt, and it was very dramatic, not so well known now, but it was part of... Um, the first battle of Ypres, the British side was nearly giving in, or people, in fact, thought it was going to give way because the artillery had been called back. And the remains of his little battalion, which was already at half strength because so many people had been killed, was ordered in as the last of the reserves, this tiny body of about 500 men. They went and did it, and they plugged the gap in this line at Gellevelt. And fighting opposite... Um, Charlie Berry at that time was a man who was known by his German mates as Lucky Linzer, known better to us as Adolf Hitler. And I hear there's a beautiful sculpture um, commemorating the Battle of Gillevelt. Yes, there is. It's by Charles Sergeant Jagger. It's in the Imperial War Museum and it's a, like a big plaque, uh, really. Um, Jagger knew exactly what was going on because he was also in the Worcestershire Regiment, which was the regiment that Charlie Berry was in. He was in a different battalion. He wasn't at Gellivelt, but he, it must have been important to him because he would have known just what these men were going through. And he has um, an interesting uh, place in history because his great-nephew is Mick Jagger. Well, there we are. It's a full circle, <laughs> isn't it? And another Richard Turner story. Yes, well, Richard Turner is the only one of the men from the First World War who didn't have this sort of village background. He was the son of the vicar, or the, the vicar who'd been there for a time. Uh, he was sent off to Westminster School. He wrote poetry. He was like those idealistic young men, Rupert Brooke and Siegfried Sassoon and so on, um, who, whose, whose poetry sums up the First World War to us. But uh, at Westminster School, life hadn't been a bed of roses because he was sick. He was off for six months because he'd been bit on the ear by a rat and he'd got blood poisoning. But um, he was fighting uh, at Ypres in 1917 and they were tunnelling underneath each other. There was a tunnelling company on our side and one on the German side and we, the rise in land wasn't very great but we were very keen to get underneath the other 
other person through this very difficult clay. Anyway, a great big mine was blown up and created a crater. Richard Turner, Dickie Turner, was leading up some reserves and the communication trench was shelled and Dickie was killed. You can see, I've been to the crater, it's in the middle of a wood now, and um, of course that patch of land was so intensely fought over, but I found it very, very moving to stand in the middle of this copse and look at this declivity in the ground and, and think back to what it had been like in 1917. What struck me when I was doing the research and reconstructing the lives of these people who would otherwise really be forgotten was that they were just ordinary people who stand for all the 900,000 people who died from Britain in the First World War. And they were just ordinary people who went off and often did extraordinary things for their country. Clive Aslett talking about his book War Memorial, which is out now. Finally, we hear from soldiers whose stories had, until 1972, been forgotten when the Imperial War Museum traced World War I veterans and interviewed them, producing the most important archive of its kind in the world. Forty years later, the Imperial War Museum gave author Max Arthur and his team of researchers unlimited access to the complete World War I tapes, which resulted in an important and compelling history of the First World War in the words of those who experienced it. Here we can hear from Frank, a soldier in the Rifle Corps, who was there at the very start. In the glorious sunshine of June 1914, everyone tried to put all thoughts of war aside. But within weeks, millions of men were on the march. Following the assassination of the heir to the Austrian throne in Sarajevo on June the 28th, Austria and Germany declared war on Russia and France. And on the 4th of August, the awesome German army, hoping to sweep down into Paris, marched into neutral Belgium. Britain, in accordance with treaty obligations and alarmed by the possible threat to the balance of power, declared war against Germany that same day. Frank Sumter was at Harwich with the 1st Battalion of the Rifle Corps. And then orders came out and I was ordered to go to uh, Parkinson Key Harwich as guard of honour to Prince Lichnowsky, the German ambassador, because he hasn't left the country then. So we went to Harwich and uh, the sergeant major came along, lined up the troops to give the present arms. And uh, the sergeant major looked at me, he said, not you, he said, not you, he said, you're too young, get back. So I had a bird's eye view of it, and I saw all the embassy staff, saw that at the beginning of the First World War, and at the end of the First World War, because I had the 1914 star, I was posted to Dover as guard of honour to the unknown warrior when they brought him in. So that was too unique experiences. Now, the main body of the British Army was being shipped to France. But unlike the French and German forces, recruited by mass conscription, the British had only a small professional army of volunteers. 
they could muster little over 700,000 men. The German Kaiser disdainfully referred to the British Expeditionary Force, or the BEF as it was widely known, as a contemptible little army. Later, mockingly and proudly, the BEF referred to themselves as the Old Contemptibles. An extract from Forgotten Voices of the Great War by Max Arthur, with audio clips from the Imperial War Museum archive. And that's out now. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes for future podcast episodes and head to SoundCloud for other author readings and audiobook extracts at www.soundcloud.com forward slash penguin hyphen books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website thepenguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.